Welcome to Enhanced Living. I'm your host, Adam Kruger. Enhanced Living is all about becoming the best version of ourselves and growing to be exactly who we were meant to become. Now, I've been through so many ups and downs in my life, and the one thing that I've learned is that there's always a next step to take on our path and our journey in this life. No matter how successful you currently are, there's always a way to be a better version of you. This podcast is all about figuring out that process. Through my own insights and interviews with extraordinary people, I hope you'll be inspired to evolve and become the best version of yourself. Let's jump right in. So for those of you who've been listening for a while now, you know that obviously I've I've been through so many different things in life that have basically springboarded me into the place where I am today. And I've always been a proponent of the fact that, you know, when you when life gives you challenges, you have to rise to meet them and you have to just say yes as if you had chosen it. Now, my guest today is a senior lecturer in psychology at Leeds Beckett University. He's the chair of the Transpersonal Psychology section of the British Psychological Society, and his articles and essays have been published in over 100 academic journals, magazines, and newspapers, and he blogs for Scientific American and Psychology Today. He is also the author of Extraordinary Awakenings, my guest today is Steve Taylor, PhD. Steve, thank you so much for being on the show today. Great to be with you. Thanks for inviting me. Oh, yes. No, I'm, I'm so excited to talk with you. So um, first, I want to just get into your background and what brought you into the psychological field. Um, can we start there? I was quite late. I didn't really get involved in psychology until my mid-30s. So I'd had a whole sort of lifetime before then. I was a musician. Uh, I originally studied literature at university. I traveled a lot. I, um, you know, explored a lot of different um, avenues of employment. Um, but by the time I was in my mid-30s, I felt as though I had to sort of um, find uh, the right place for me. And I felt drawn towards transpersonal psychology, which is kind of spiritual psychology. In fact, I didn't realize that there was such a thing as transpersonal psychology or spiritual psychology. I discovered it by accident. When I discovered it, I thought, wow, this is, this is me. This is where I feel at home. This is what I'm meant to be doing. So I began to, you know, went back to university to study psychology and became involved in transpersonal psychology. Wow. So you, you've had quite a, a, a colorful life. I mean, a musician in literature. So you're an artist first. Uh, you know, typically, you know, when people hear about, you know, people in the sciences, right? Doctors, lawyers, well, not lawyers, that's not science, but, you know, doctors, <laughs> psychologists, so on and so forth, you know, um, chemists, you don't think, you don't think artist, you know, you know, you just, you feel like people are more analytical when they move towards the, the science background, but you, you were first and foremost, I, I want to say an artist. How does that kind of, mm. you know, work into your practice today? I think it helps me. I mean, I was originally a writer. I always wrote poetry from the age of 15 or 16. I wrote stories. And later on, I gravitated towards uh, kind of uh, nonfiction writing about psychology and spirituality. So I think it helps me. It gives me a kind of a, a more kind of right brain perspective. I feel as though I can sort of marry my left brain and right brain. So I can marry the kind of the, the intellectual side of my personality with a more creative and spiritual side. So, so I think a lot of scientists are, are you know, very left brain orientated and it becomes a little bit dry, a little bit abstract, a little bit detached from the world or from the body. But I, I feel as though my background in creativity and spirituality helps to keep me embodied and helps to sort of, uh, you know, to bring a sense of integration. Interesting. Would you say that it helps you relate to people on a, on a deeper level? I think so. Yeah. I mean, for example, you know, a lot of psychologists are very neurologically orientated. 
they tend to explain human behavior in terms of neuroscience, or they try to explain it in terms of neuroscience, but I've never really gone down that avenue. I've always had a more kind of holistic perspective. And, um, you know, a lot of psychiatrists, sorry, psychologists, you know, focus on the mind, obviously, because that's what psychology is, the study of the mind. But I would take it further. I would, I would go beyond the mind and talk about, you know, spirituality, which a lot of psychologists would not do. See, I, I love that approach. I love the holistic approach. And so I'm wondering from a, uh, from a spiritual perspective, you know, what your views are with respect to, uh, you know, melding psychology and spirituality. So like, where, where, where's the nexus point? Where does it connect? I think they are naturally allied. I don't think you can really separate psychology and spirituality. Um, because, you know, what, if you stop at the level of the mind, um, you know, you, you know you, you're sort of selling human beings short. We have a whole lot of levels of our being which go beyond the mind, at least the mind as it presently is. I think the thing about transpersonal psychology is that it doesn't accept that the, the goal of human, of human development is to be a fully functioning, healthy functioning person with a strong ego, a person who can function well in society and achieve their goals and, you know, feel comfortable in themselves. You know, transpersonal psychology thinks there's much more than that. There are lots of levels of human development beyond that. You know, and that takes us into the realms of spirituality. It takes us into Buddhism or, or into yoga or Taoism. So you can see transpersonal psychology, is, it tries to marry Western psychology with Eastern spiritual philosophy. See, I, I love that. You're definitely in the right place because I'm, I'm a huge proponent of that. I do believe that, you know, I'm very much a spiritual being. I've always been on a spiritual path for as long as I can remember. But at the same time, I, I embrace science and I love the scientific side of things yeah, because I, I feel like the two prove each other, don't they? Yeah, exactly. I, I'm the same. I mean, some spiritually minded people are quite anti-science. You know, we can see that in, you know, in recent months and, year, and um, recent years, um, you know, but yeah, I agree with you. I think science and spirituality have to work together. I think, you know, spirituality without rationality is very kind of vague and very woolly, very new agey, but, but, but science without spirituality becomes very arid, very mechanical. It treats human beings as machines. So you got to bring those two together. And I think, Actually, I actually wrote a book called Spiritual Science about three years ago. And my whole um, theory in that book was that, you know, that you have to marry science and spirituality. And it's when you do that, that science actually begins to work well, because science, as it normally functions, doesn't actually explain the world very well. It doesn't explain human behavior very well. It doesn't really explain consciousness. It doesn't really explain altruism. It doesn't explain psi experiences or near-death experiences or spiritual experiences. But if you bring in a spiritual element, then science can explain those things. You know, you can explain consciousness from a spiritual point of view. You can explain altruism from a spiritual point of view. So you suddenly get a much more co cohesive and complete picture of the world if you bring, you know, the two of them together. Yeah, I, I agree. As someone with not a, a non-scientific background, I mean, my background is in in, in marketing and, uh, you know, entertainment. And, and so, you know, that's my background, but my, my knowledge base and my, uh, my desire for learning expands, you know, across all sorts of things. And the more I've studied science, the more I've, you know, just read articles and journals and, you know, you, you go down the rabbit hole deep enough into science and what you end up with is energy, which is exactly what, you know, spirituality is. 
is is all about mm. it's you know you you hear people talking about vibes and and you know feeling energy and i've always been someone who can feel energy like mm. i can feel people's um intentions i can feel what they're feeling at most points of well if, if we're in the same room i can feel what you're feeling uh even even just over a phone call i can tell so mm. as someone who can feel that right i'm just attuned to it because I, I don't believe that anyone has uh any you know I don't want to say powers, but I don't believe that anyone has any abilities that that anyone else can't have. We all can tune mm -hmm. ourselves into the same frequencies, uh, you know, with practice and work. And some people are just more attuned to it uh, than others, you know, off the bat. Um, but what I'm getting at here is that, you know, we, we come from this perspective of I think there's so many people on either side that are not willing to look at the other side. And I feel like mm. someone like you who is walking the line between the two with transpersonal psychology and, you know, basically taking that spiritual side and melding it with the scientific side of psychology. I feel like you're 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 the um, kind of like the shepherd, right, to bring people together. Hopefully. Yeah. I mean, I mean, the danger is that you you kind of alienate some people on both sides because some people on both sides, particularly on the kind of scientific side, have quite a rigid, dogmatic view of the world. A lot of scientists kind of unknowingly subscribe to a certain picture of reality, a certain kind of metaphysical worldview. And it, it, is, it is a materialist or physicalist worldview. It suggests that the essential reality of the universe is physical stuff, and there's nothing really beyond that. And everything that is mental or subjective can be explained in terms of physical stuff. And, you know, and that they try to explain the human behavior in terms of genes and uh, brain cells, neurological functioning. They try to dismiss all kinds of anomalous phenomena which don't fit into that worldview, like um, precognition or near-death experiences and so forth. But um, yeah, so a lot of people, without realizing it, they, they have this kind of well, scientist, scientific is not the right word because it's not scientific. It's kind of like a, like a kind of fundamentalist almost. It's like fundamentalist scientific worldview, or you could call it scientism because it's a kind of belief system derived from some of the findings of science. But so you have to get beyond that. And I think, you know, a lot of scientists are open to, you know, once they realize that they have adopted certain assumptions, then they are willing to question those assumptions if there is evidence. For example, you know, I, I've written a few articles about psi phenomena and I've written about them in my books. And the evidence for things like precognition or telepathy is very, very strong. You know, there were lots of very carefully controlled scientific studies with positive findings you know, that have taken place over many, many years. But a lot of people are just not aware of the evidence. So if you show people the evidence that they're quite surprised and, you know, it, it doesn't. Some people are just closed to it, but some people are willing to, to open their minds to it. The irony to me is, and, and by the way, all of that is is extremely interesting because you're talking about evidence of, you know, what people would call the supernatural, right? So a lot of people mm -hmm. who don't, you know, who aren't familiar with it would say, well, precognition is supernatural, right? When I believe that it's, it's actually quite natural and we all have yeah. the ability to tap into that. We're getting messages all the time. Um, but... I lost my I lost my 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 line on where I was going with that. The the thing that I was trying to get to is is that, you know, when when you think about um, the people who are super closed off to it, I find that the irony is uh, so many of them are lost in in religion <laughs> and 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 they 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 refuse to to buy into it because of religion, which in and of itself mm. is is sort of, um, you know, from that same same area. What do you what do you have to say about that? 
Yeah, that is quite strange. Yeah, a lot of Christians are opposed to the idea of uh, you know supernatural phenomena like uh, psi phenomena, such as telepathy or precognition. They associate it with the devil for some bizarre reason. I find it quite bizarre because you know if you are a Christian, you're, you've already entered the realm of supernatural beliefs. So why not be open to you know other well, supernatural beliefs? But I guess you know Christianity. I mean, we're talking about we're not talking about all Christians because some Christians are quite open-minded people. We're talking about kind of fundamentalist Christians, and fundamentalist Christianity is a very closed and rigid belief system. And if you know if phenomena do not fit into that belief system then they're not going to accept it, no matter what evidence there is. They're not going to accept the, the evidence for evolution, despite all the evidence that's there, because they exist within this very rigid and closed worldview. So, yeah, there's, you know, there's, there's not much you can do about it when somebody has such a, a rigid worldview. And it's, it's interesting. I, I want to know what does transpersonal psychology have to say about people with these rigid worldviews? Like what... What's the what's the cause and what's the solution or not? I mean, solution. Obviously, if you're if you're one of those people, you don't feel like there needs to be a solution. But yeah. from the perspective of you know harmony within the human race, <laughs> what would you say is the answer? And well, first let's start with the cause. Mm, good question. Um, I actually wrote about it in a book called The Fall, um, and in that book, I suggest that the essential problem for many human beings is that we have this kind of overdeveloped sense of ego which creates a sense of separateness. We feel that we are beings who inhabit our bodies, who are kind of imprisoned within our own body and mind, looking at our world, which is out there on the other side. So that creates a basic sense of separation, a basic sense of isolation. I sometimes call it ego isolation. And because we feel separate, we also feel incomplete. We feel like there's something missing. We're like fragments that have been broken off from the whole. So we need we need to feel strengthened, we need some support. So I suggest that religion for, for a lot of people is a kind of support network that kind of strengthens the ego. And if you are part of a religious belief system, you know, it gives you a sense of security, it gives you a sense of meaning, you feel that you're part of a group, so you are no longer alone. You feel, you feel like this omnipotent being is watching over you all the time, is taking special care of you. So it gives you a sense of, um, you know, sense of being at home and in the world and being protected. So it's all about the ego. It's all about protecting and strengthening the ego. And that, that's why, you know, it's very important to, to maintain your beliefs because these, these beliefs are like, they're like a kind of scaffolding which supports your ego. So if you take away the structure, then you, your ego will just collapse. You'll feel vulnerable. You'll feel weak. You'll feel alone. So, you know, you, you need to cling, keep clinging on to this belief system that supports your ego. But the, the way of, tr of going beyond that is to transcend separateness. In my book, The Fall, I suggest that the essential, aims of, the essential aim of all spiritual practices and paths is to transcend separateness, to transcend that feeling of being a separate ego. And once you do that, which you can do through following a lot of different paths, you can do it through... You know, following a, a path of regular meditation, through serving other people, through a certain lifestyle of sort of quietness and contact with nature and, and various different things. Or you could follow a very specific spiritual path like uh, Buddhism or yoga or Kabbalah or Taoism, whatever it may be. But it takes you beyond separateness. And therefore, you lose that need to identify with a, a very strict belief system. And you, lead, you, you, you lose that need to, to defend 
your belief system, even to to go to to fall into conflict with other people who have different beliefs, because you you also lose that feeling of that need, the need for group identity. So all the, all of that kind of scaffolding, all of that structure that supports the ego, is no longer necessary. So and that's why a lot of spiritual people actually go beyond religion. They may have a certain path which works for them, but they don't feel the need to you know to to go to war with other <laughs> other groups who have different beliefs, and you know they don't. You know, they don't feel the need to defend their beliefs against every, you know, argument against them. So that, that's the essential thing is to go beyond separateness. I love that. And it, it's interesting because there's there's a couple things. One, uh, you know, I for me, uh, organized religion became like I, I, I felt it was a sham at the age of I think I was like 12 or 13 when I was just like, this is, this is ridiculous. This is, I, I don't have to go anywhere to connect with source. Like I can do it from home. I don't have to be somewhere. I don't have to, there was a lot of realizations that I had at a very, very young age, which started me on my, my spiritual path. And mm -hmm. it kind of came full circle though, because I find the irony is so many different world religions seem to, you know, kind of, um, uh, other, the other people, right. As opposed mm -hmm. to, to getting beyond the separateness, but at the at their core, all religions at their core are saying the same thing, which is love one another. We're all equal. Like yeah. so, I just I find it's this ironic sort of um, you know backwards thing where the religion is used to separate us all, yet the religion at its core is meant to unite us all. So and and mm. I want to I want to segue from there into uh, your current book, Extraordinary Awakenings. But before I do, uh, what do you have to say about about that little piece of of, um, well, I don't, I don't want to say, let's call it realization of the fact that at their yeah. core, each religion is basically, uh, you know, espousing the same thing. That's true. But yeah, I think we need to, you know, I think it's important to realize that conventional religion or traditional religion is a kind of, this is, sounds quite controversial, but in most cases, it's a kind of like a, a degenerated form of religion. It's degenerated from its original source. Mm -hmm. A good example is, um, you know, I don't know what, what what was your background that you grew that you grew up in. Oh, I, I grew up Jewish. Oh, okay. Yeah, um, and I, I I still you know I have nothing you know I, I still consider myself Jewish. I love the the core uh, the core values of you know at 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 the heart of what it is, but mm -hmm. I don't I don't practice so. It, to me, it, it all boiled down to, um, I, I realize this is a longer answer than you were probably looking for, but you know, when, when I remember the holiest holiday of, in Judaism is, is Yom Kippur, right? And it's the day of atonement. Mm -hmm. You're supposed to fast and ask forgiveness. And I remember being in school and I remember learning that if you pray to God and ask for forgiveness from God, but have wronged your fellow man and have not asked forgiveness from them, you know, God doesn't forgive you. Okay. Now, um, my, my understanding from that was, well, then the most important thing above all rituals, above all, you know, anything at all is to be a good human. And so to me, being a good Jew is being a good human. And that means yeah. taking care of people and being kind to others. And it doesn't matter if I turn off lights on the Sabbath or if I, you know, whatever I, you know, do none of that matters as long as I, I lead with kindness. And so that became my, my religion, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I think that's a, that's a good example. But I, th I think the original source of all religions is, you know, great spiritual teachers like Jesus Christ, um, um, like the Buddha, you know, um, the Baal Shem Tov mm -hmm. in the Hasidic Ju Judaism. They're all great teachers. But once the teachings get into the hands of other people, you know, something different happens. You know, they become ossified. They, they get become rigid. 
You know, I mean, I, I was reading about the Baal Shem Tov. I don't know if you're familiar with him, boy, but he was a, you know, a revolutionary spiritual guy. He was an incredible person. You know, he could have brought uh, the teaching, the spiritual teachings of the Kabbalah to, or, or Judaism to the masses, you know, and he brought spirituality into everyday life. He was a kind of revolutionary figure in, in Jewish spirituality. But, but yeah, it's the same with Jesus. You know, Jesus was a very revolutionary spiritual guy. But once, you know, the teachings are passed on to future generations, you lose that kind of original spiritual essence and you, you take, it, it, it kind of, it gets, the mind gets involved, you know, it becomes egoic and people start to believe, start to build rigid structures around those original teachings. And the, the original, you know, the, 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 the principles and the teachings become very rigid and they're passed down from generation to generation. Every generation preserves them, but in the act of preserving them, they're keeping them rigid. You know, it's, they're losing the original spirit. So there's this process of decay. You know, you move further and further away from the original source, which is a real shame, you know, so, but that seems to be the way it's always been with, um, with religion. But as you say, you know, the, the, original, the original source is always there if you want to look for it. And some people will find it. Yeah, and I, I think it's important. And I think that this kind of ties nicely into into uh, a your material in the sense that you know, with transpersonal psychology, in in my mind at least, it's about breaking down these barriers of the ego, as as you said, right? Which could then lead you to the truth of. Uh, you know these spiritual movements that became religions that became ensconced in 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 ego and 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 I want to say ridiculousness because anything that's telling somebody that they're less than to me is ridiculous. <laughs> you know we should be lifting each other up. So uh, your your book Extraordinary Awakenings is is about why some people when they go through hardship they they rise up and actually transform themselves into something better than they were before, whereas some people when faced with extreme hardship, they crumble and fall. So can we talk about that for a minute or for many minutes? <laughs> <laughs> sure. Um, yeah, the, the book it emerged from my research into spiritual experiences. I originally found that a lot of spiritual experiences were triggered by situations of extreme trauma and turmoil, like for example, a soldier on the battlefield, um, you know, a person who was deeply depressed, a person who was suffering from intense stress, Suddenly, suddenly they would shift into a different state of being in which all of their fear and anxiety would leave them. And they'd feel this incredible, <clears throat> incredible sense of harmony and a sense of oneness with their surroundings, almost as if joy and despair were kind of like interconnected in some strange way. So I began to investigate that in more detail. And a lot of people told me that in the midst of intense turmoil and trauma, they underwent a, a permanent shift. They had a spiritual experience which didn't fade away it became, it kind of heralded a shift into a new state of being. Sometimes the spiritual experience slightly faded in, in intensity, but it remained as the kind of foundation of a new identity inside them. So that could happen after a diagnosis with cancer. Um, it could happen to, you know, it happened to, it ha sometimes happens to prisoners who've been incarcerated for a long time, the people who've been severely addicted to drugs or alcohol for a long time. There was this, this sudden shift into a different identity. And um, I, don't, I don't know if you're familiar with the term post-traumatic growth, which mm. is a psychological concept, but you know, psych psychologists have been studying post-traumatic growth for quite a long time now. And that just suggests that in the aftermath of trauma, people will, un will undergo some positive development, whether it's, you know, it, it could be years after the original trauma, but eventually um, the, the initial traumatic symptoms will fade away to some degree and they realize that they are slightly different people. 
you know, the world seems a slightly different place and they have a wider sense of perspective. They feel more appreciative of their lives. They have deeper, more authentic relationships and so forth. So the kind of transformation I'm talking about is a kind of post-traumatic growth, but it's very, very dramatic and very intense. It's not just growth, it's complete transformation. Yeah, and here's here's like what I'm hearing with post-traumatic growth and, uh, you know, having this severe traumatic experience that changes you and leaves you in a better place. In, in my mind, what I'm thinking and feeling is, is, you know, when someone undergoes, you know, something that's so extreme that basically you get to this place where the ego just basically dissolves because it can't handle like it, it's it's almost like it kills your ego. I want to yeah. say and so because of that what's left is your your spiritual essence the, the what what you truly are and so once you get a taste of that uh you know that's what springs forth and you you start to realize what's actually important in life and so you reprioritize mm. things and start to kind of grow it, it 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 springs you forward and while living in this physical world you know the ego does come back to a certain degree which is which is how mm -hmm. the spiritual experience sort of i want to say fades but i don't i don't think it fades so much as the ego comes back a little bit as you go well but maybe mm -hmm. i do want a little bit more of this physical whatever it is but the spiritual experience of of getting into contact with who you truly are, I feel never goes away. Uh, would you say that that's roughly accurate? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, um, it is almost as if the people's ego identity dissolves away. It's almost like a, you know, sometimes it's like an earthquake where, you know, there, there's a period of intense stress which suddenly breaks down the ego like an earthquake. Sometimes it's a long process of loss or failure or addiction which slowly breaks down the ego over many, many years. Now, I sometimes think of it in terms of uh, psychological attachments. You know, psychological attachments are the building blocks of the ego. And by psychological attachments, I mean things like ambitions, hope, self-esteem, a sense of status, achievement, possessions. You know, you can be attached to possessions or wealth or to your role in society and so forth. But when people go through long periods of depression or addiction, or when people go to prison, th these things are taken away from them. You know, they lose their identity. So all of these building blocks are taken away. And at a certain point, the ego just collapses like a house. When you take the bricks away, the house will collapse. So the interesting thing is what happens then when the ego collapses? So as you suggest, for some people, a new kind of identity emerges, a new kind of spiritual identity which seems to have always been there inside them, but it's been covered up by this other ego, this other identity. So yeah, it's, it's, it's almost like the unfolding of a, a completely new identity, like um, a phoenix rising from the ashes or, or a chrysalis, uh, sorry, a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. But interestingly, that doesn't seem to happen with everybody though. You know, Probably most people who go through intense suffering, they just have a breakdown. They don't actually you know, experience this identity shift. So there are obviously some reasons why some people experience this transformation while other people don't. You know, other people just have a, a very painful breakdown and then slowly they have to try to put their ego back together again. So what is it that you think causes some people to crumble and other people to rise above like a phoenix from the ashes? Well, it's quite mysterious, but I think there are some things that you can identify one is that it just seems to be a question of readiness. Like in some people, this new spiritual self just seems to be ready to emerge. It, se it seems to be fully formed as a structure, just like a, you know, the way that a, 
a chick is fully formed in the egg and waiting to be to hatch it's a bit like that this kind of new spiritual self is ready it's fully formed just waiting for the opportunity but in other people maybe it's just not ready you know maybe it's just not fully formed maybe at some kind of unconscious level people need to do more work they need to become more integrated in a kind of unconscious spiritual way um but in in other cases it was a question of how people responded to their predicament for example i found that it was very important to to respond with an attitude of acknowledgement you know where you you don't avoid your predicament you don't divert yourself from it you face it and you you take in the reality of it you, know, you face no matter how painful it is even if you've been diagnosed with cancer even if your loved one has died you face up to it and you you kind of contemplate the reality of it and you also face up to the your inner pain you know all of the turmoil that you're experiencing you don't just divert yourself from it by from, by drinking or by you know deluding yourself you face up to your inner pain and you so you go inside yourself and explore uh, the turmoil that you're experiencing but most of all um you know the most important aspect was acceptance almost everybody who i interviewed for my book could identify a moment when they accepted their predicament when they let go of their resistance to it they kind of surrendered to their predicament they stopped you know stopped trying to fight against it and in in a lot of cases that was the very moment when transformation occurred in that moment of acceptance almost as if you know acceptance was stopping sorry almost as if resistance was stopping the transformation and as soon as they let down their resistance then suddenly the transformation could flood through like kind of water flooding through a dam that makes perfect sense to me uh personally i mean while while you were talking about that you know i was thinking about so i've been on this journey for a very very long time it's it's you know over over 25 years i've been you know searching and meditating and you know, learning different things and reading so many different books. And when we talk about acceptance, you know, a wonderful book by uh, Byron Katie, Loving What Is. I don't know if you're uh, oh, aware yeah. of it. I, I know that. Yeah. Yeah. I it's a ph yeah. phenomenal, yeah. phenomenal book. And it's it's about really just kind of, you know, accepting whatever comes into your life as if you'd chosen it. Right. And, and mm. Eckhart Tolle talks about that as well, which is, you know, anything else is madness. If you if you're resisting whatever's in front of you, a you're 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 denying the present moment, but you're also you're also causing whatever pain is there to persist right what you resist persists yeah. as you fight against it you know you you can't you know you can't change the fact that it is what it is so you <laughs> might as well accept it and then and then make decisions from that point to move on so yeah. so i, I want to know what um so you know we talk about how some people are ready to emerge and some people are ready to evolve and i feel like the the the, the listeners that are here uh, listening to enhanced living, these are people who are ready to move on, right? But but not everyone not everyone has to face trauma to evolve. Some people no. some people just do. So my question is, how can we access this ability to to um, awaken spiritually without the trauma? Is there is there something that you've seen in your research that is like, oh well, wait a minute. If we kind of look at it this way, this is how you can take your steps forward. Mm, certainly, I mean, sometimes pe people sometimes say to me, you know. Are you saying that we can only develop spiritually through suffering? Do we have to suffer in order to spiritually awaken? And that's not the case at all. You know, I wouldn't say that at all. Um, and I, I think, you know, if you analyze the cases of people who do undergo spiritual awakening through suffering, as I do in the book, 
there are certain principles that you can learn and apply to your own development. So that, that's what I do in the book. There's a whole section where I look at the principles and try to apply them. And, and one of them is, um, you know, we, just, we were just talking about acceptance, cultivating acceptance. As you were saying, you know, just stop fighting against reality. Just accept reality as it is. A good example is illness. I was just thinking when you were speaking about illness, you know, when you were ill, there's often a part of your mind that says, oh, no, you know, why am I ill? I don't want to be ill. Why did this happen to me? <laughs> and so on. I, re I really should be at work. I should be doing this. I should be doing that. Obviously, you're just doubling your suffering, you know, just let go and just accept it. And then, ah, then you switch into a mode of acceptance and you feel relaxed and actually you begin to heal. Then that's when you begin to heal through acceptance. So we can practice acceptance in every area of our lives. And, you know, acceptance is often, you know, it's, it's a way of harnessing the, the transformational potential of every situation. If you resist a situation, you will never experience any spiritual growth from it because you are in conflict with the situation. You are in duality with the situation. But acceptance creates a state of oneness. You know, you open yourself to your experience. You become one with your experience and that's when transformation begins to occur. But also um, in a more general sense, it's very important to practice psychological detachment. And I don't mean that in a negative sense, in the sense of being indifferent to the world and not caring about other people. I mean indifference in the sense, sorry, I mean detachment in the sense of not being psychologically attached to external things. So not being attached to possessions, not being attached to ambitions for the future, um, not being attached to belief systems um, um, and, or to achievements and status or even knowledge. I think, you know, if you start to, if you start to analyze yourself, you begin, a lot of people will, will begin to realize that their identity and their well-being depends on a lot, of, a lot of external things, such as their role in society, their career identity, their ambitions for the future, their possessions, and so on. So if you took all these things away, it would be quite painful, and they would feel that their identity would you know, diminish. But it's important to realize that we don't need any of these attachments to be happy. The real source of happiness is beyond attachment. I think that's, that's what all the people in my book realize. You know, they find that when everything is broken down, when all of their attachments dissolve away, then they find real inner wholeness and real inner well-being. But we can we can do that in our lives without trauma and turmoil. We can cultivate a state of inner wholeness and well-being, which frees us from psychological attachments. So that's important. The, the third thing I mentioned in the book is um, contemplating mortality, because a lot of the people I interviewed experienced transformation simply through becoming intensely aware of the reality of death through a diagnosis of cancer or a serious accident or through coming close to death in the midst of addiction. So just simply just being aware of death has a very powerful effect. Even if you believe in some form of afterlife, which I personally do, even though I'm not religious, I think there's a lot of evidence for some form of afterlife. You know, life in this form, in this body, in this world is temporary and, and precious and fragile and once you realize that then it changes everything once you you know once you contemplate and fully accept the reality of that it changes everything you know you, you start to live in the present you let go of your attachments everything becomes valuable in your life so you know it's, it's very important to contemplate mortality in that sense 
I agree. I, you know, there's, there's a few things I want to touch on from what you just said, you know, um, and I'll start with the last point first, which is, uh, you know, afterlife and the fact that, you know, you know, people, you said there's a lot of evidence and I, and I agree. And, you know, for, for those that are skeptical about that, I mean, at the end of the day, science has already proven that everything in existence is energy, right? The, mm -hmm. the particle can be the wave, the wave can be the particle. It's based on observation. Quantum physics has shown so many different things that, um, you know, again, I know it's like, it, it doesn't necessarily hold up as we zoom out or, and, and, and get to the, the macro universe, but if it's happening on the micro level, then it has to be happening on the macro level as well, because that's what makes us up. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if everything is energy and energy cannot be created or destroyed, but it only changes, um, you know, form, right. Then mm -hmm. we are energy and therefore we cannot be created nor destroyed. And so upon death and i'm using air quotes if you're not watching um you know upon death we 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 still exist we just don't exist in the same form so so mm. right there is is its own like I, I think that's a pretty scientifically sound argument for a proof of afterlife so to speak yeah. whether it's the consciousness that survives which i do believe it is uh or if it's something else you know that obviously remains to be seen i don't know how to prove that i don't know that it's even provable but yeah. you know just to kind of go there and you know speaking of of acceptance right um i think i don't remember who I, I interviewed a guest on the show and i don't remember exactly it's it's been a while now but we were talking about radical acceptance right which is just literally accepting everything and as you were speaking mm -hmm. about uh you know breaking free of ego attachments and uh and discussing just accepting what what is in the moment it, it dawned on me i'm like well we need to you know so many people try to fight against their ego they're like well no no, no that's ego i have to no 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 accept your mm -hmm. ego accept it love it understand it uh, that doesn't mean give into it, you know, the same way that you can love your child and 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 accept them for who they are. But it doesn't mean that you're going to let them eat candy at 9 p.m. before bedtime. Right. So so you you still you have to accept it and love it and, and accept it as part of you. But don't don't give in to the baser uh, desires of the ego, I think, is 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 probably a good way to start the evolutionary process for yourself and your soul. Would you say mm, I agree? And you could apply that to thinking as well. You know, there are some meditation techniques which are based on stopping thoughts. And, you know, that, that can easily become, you know, um, you can take that to a point of suppressing thoughts, trying to just stop your mind altogether. But that doesn't really work because if you suppress thoughts, they, just, they kind of build up more unconscious pressure. It builds up a kind of sense of frustration inside you. So I think the best approach is to accept thoughts, but just, um, you know, don't stop them. Just watch them, just separate yourself from them, stand back and watch them just like, just as if you're somebody who's sitting on a riverbank watching the river flow by, just stand, stand, you know, stand to one side and watch your thoughts flow by. And then you can sort of laugh at them. You can think, wow, what a ridiculous thoughts. <laughs> but um, yeah, and then you're not really affected by them. You can think, um, you know, there may be a negative thought that passes by and you think, wow, wow, a negative thought. I don't, I don't have to take that seriously. Or it could be kind of some kind of desire that flows by and you just let it go by and you don't attach yourself to it. Um, and that's, that is a, the best way of becoming free of a thought is to observe it, to stand back and observe. And once you do that, once you accept the thoughts in that way, they naturally quieten down. You know, they begin to slow down because you're not identifying with them anymore. So, yeah, that, that's a much better way, a much better approach than trying to suppress your thoughts. Yeah, I, I agree. And, you know, you also talked about non-attachment, right? And, um, you know, not not identifying with the wealth and the 
uh, all the physical things that we try to accumulate through life. And and I just want to I just want to point out because so many people believe that being spiritual means living without everything, right? And it's not about living without everything. It's about living without being attached to everything. So in other words. Go ahead and accumulate whatever you want. Go and enjoy the home. Go and enjoy the whatever it is. It's just, it's just that's not who you are. It's what you have, and don't be mm-hmm. attached to it. it. Is at least the way I see things. You know, um, do what you can to help others because I believe that life is primarily service. But that doesn't mean that you have to live in in poverty to serve others, right? The best thing you can do is to actually enrich your own life and then share that with as many people as you possibly can in whatever capacity that you're able to. Um, What would you say about that perspective? Yeah, I think moderation is key. And I like the Buddha's idea of the the middle way that, you know, the the Buddha was all about, you know, you you can't be an ascetic, you can't punish yourself and, and fast and starve yourself because you won't be able to help other people. So you, but at the same time, you don't want to live a life of excess because that will bring a degeneration of your personality and make you more egotistical. So you need to follow the middle way where you, you have to preserve your own self. You have to take care of your own self. And, you know, and if you do that, then you can take care of other people too. Um, But yeah, it reminds me of, um, I think it's also important to remember though, that, you know, we we obviously do need a certain level of material well-being to survive. And there's nothing at all wrong with, you know, it's, it's great to enjoy pleasures, to enjoy food and, um, and so forth. Um, you know, I'm, I'm certainly not an ascetic, but at the same time, you know, w- once you are in a, a spiritual mode, you don't actually need that much. You know, you, you don't really need luxury. You know, I mean, if it happens to come your way, if you're staying in a luxury hotel, if somebody pays for a luxury hotel, and why not enjoy it? And it's, it's great. You know, enjoy the swimming pool, and but but you don't need really need those things. So if they're not there, it doesn't really matter, and you don't feel a strong urge to accumulate them. You know, I think. In the egoic frame of mind, there is a very strong urge to accumulate things, to accumulate money, possessions, status, power, because that strengthens your ego, that you, you feel that that's a way of taking away your separation. But if you transcend separation, then you don't really need to accumulate anything. You know, you're happy just to be as you are. Yeah. And I think getting out in nature actually is a big, is a big, big, big healing thing for people um, once you realize that, you know, you could just see an animal, you know, prancing about in in the forest or whatever, and and you realize that that animal is completely happy, taken care of, enjoying themselves, living off the land, doing what they need mm. to do. You know, humans are the only. I, I read this quote. I don't remember where now. So you know, obviously, this isn't me saying this, but humans are the only people or the only organisms on the planet that pay to live here. Um, <laughs> you know, and and so that's because of our mental constructs that we've created as far as as far as ego goes. So um, you know, just keeping keeping in 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 uh, in line with obviously respecting your time. Uh, I just want to say, um, you know, this has been a phenomenal conversation. I I want to know. Uh, what you think the last question, the the number one takeaway that people will be able to, you know, uh, take from extraordinary awakenings, uh, what would you say that would be? One thing I have learned from writing the book and interviewing all of the people in the book is that there is a, an incredible resilience resilience inside human beings, which we're not normally aware of. When our lives are running smoothly and easily, we only really scratch the surface of our potential you know, but when we are challenged by crises or by trauma, then we go deep within ourselves and we find these incredible, it's it's like finding a treasure, you know, we find this incredible richness of resilience and strength inside us. And, you know, it it makes us able to cope with almost anything. 
So I found that again and again, that even in the most desperate, the most critical, the most desolate circumstances, people found this incredible resilience inside them. And, you know, and that led them to transformation. You know, it was like a kind of, it's like a kind of alchemy. You know, they found this kind of alchemical gold inside their being, which enabled them to, to transform. I, I love that. Um, first of all, for all of you listening right now, go and grab Extraordinary Awakenings uh, and find your own alchemical gold within you. Um, <laughs> I, it's, it can be bought wherever books are bought. Uh, Steve, can you please tell people where they can find you as well? Uh, you can find me in Manchester, England, or on the on the internet. You can find me at www.stephenmtaylor.com. That's Stephen with a V, M for Mark. StephenmTaylor.com. So there is lots of um, information about my work there. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being a guest on the show today. Uh, it's it's been an absolute pleasure. Me too. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks a lot. Thanks for inviting me. It's been great. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Enhanced Living. If you enjoyed what you heard today, share it with a friend. And if you haven't already, kindly subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcast player. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, feel free to reach me directly at enhancedliving.net. Have a great day.